This podcast is brought to you by Woven, a simple way to purchase t-shirts delivered to your door each month, starting at just $11 a month. Here's how it works. You can choose one of two options, either a blank tee or a graphic tee, and both come in crew or v-neck. And then you get one shirt delivered right to you each month. They have a soft feel, classic designs, and one of the great things is these are pre-shrunk, so you don't have to worry about them shrinking in the wash. If you choose the design shirts, this is what's great. Each month, their designs are done by freelance graphic artists from around the country. I can truly appreciate that because I've been a freelance artist for like 15 years now, and I know the time that goes into our designs and how much love we pour into it. This way, you can have the whole world wearing your designs, and you get featured on the Woven website as well as within the packaging. So cool. Also, their prices include shipping, so you never have to shop for t-shirts again. Just choose whether you want the blank or the graphic tees, and then sit back while they roll in each month at a fraction of what you would pay in the store. Just go to woven.com, that's W-O-H-V-E-N.com, check out their past designs, Really clever, very clean graphic tees. And this is for men, but they also do shirts for kids as well. And our podcast listeners get 25% off the first month by just putting in the offer code CLATCH. That's K-L-A-T-C-H for 25% off your first month. Woven.com, promo code CLATCH. Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. Watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene. Winter is coming. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing episode two, Stormborn. Written by Brian Cogman, directed by Mark Millad. IMDb gave this a 9.2, Rotten Tomatoes a 100%. 100% flawless. Loving on this episode too. They said, while necessarily setting up the events for the season, Stormborn features compelling strategic discussion and a cracking action sequence to end the episode with a bang, which is pretty much how we felt about it as well. Directed by Mark Millad. We know that name all too well. We love this director. And it's very evident because he does a lot of callbacks throughout this whole episode. Absolutely. And he's going to be doing the next episode, episode three as well. And last time in our first ever instant coffee episode, we went over Jason and my thoughts about the episode. Right after it aired, we didn't do any research. So now we're coming back to you with the deeper look. We're going to go over the title meaning, the new faces and places. We will do the crow's eye view, but we'll try to keep it just to information we didn't discuss last time, some background to flesh it out and fun facts. Oh, don't say flesh. (laughs) Then we'll give you our Raven rating for the episode, do our wolf watch, which I'm very excited about this time, our MVB, that's most valuable bannerman, and our sneak peek through the heart tree at what's coming up next. I think what we're going to do is on our Twitter at CKC Podcast, after every episode, we're going to put up a poll and we're going to ask the Clatchers what their most valuable bannerman was. This way, in the podcast, we can have the winner 
and we can have what we thought and what our clatters thought. I, I think I'm on to you, Jason. You just want to see if they agree with yours or mine. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, we will get to our clatchers' comments later, but Melly wrote in. She was the only one to give us the MVB for last episode, and hers was Sam, because he's the reason why John plans on aligning with Danny and getting the Dragonglass. He's boosting his army and gets closer to getting rid of the White Walkers. Also, looks like Sam will be able to cure Jorah, and then hopefully he will reunite with Danny. She will be super happy. She'll ask him to undress for proof of remission. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And since Sam was my MVB for episode one, I think that's great. Let's jump into fun facts. I have a few for you. The season premiere was the most tweeted GOT episode ever with 2.4 million tweets. And I think we were responsible for like a million of those. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. And Chris, I want to bring Grayscale up with you. I want to know what your opinion is. Nerdist on YouTube had this segment discussing three ways curing Grayscale can help destroy the White Walkers. Okay. And it's a great video, so you guys should check it out on YouTube. So they start off with reminding us that Grayscale is known as Garen's Curse, a plague from the Valerian's world-conquering days, putting the disease in the fire column along with dragons, dragonglass, and valerian steel. So they're putting that all in together. Hmm. So you got to keep that in mind. Okay. So their first way, they say it could be used as a biological weapon. After Sam finds the cure, he'll let Jon Snow know, and Jon Snow will let Danny know. And they said Danny could threaten a grayscale outbreak in King's Landing. And then once the knees are bent, they can come in and cure it. Ooh, that is pretty extreme, and I don't think I could see Danny doing that. It would make one hell of a weapon, but that just doesn't feel like her style. There is one thing that gives me pause, but it would spoil one of the book plots. So I'm going to save that for later on to the end, and we can give a spoiler warning. Number two, the cure could usher in a new era of advances in practical science that help defeat magic, a non-magical defense, which we've seen With Cersei now and how they're going to take out the magic of dragons or their thoughts of it. Yeah, I have. We're going to talk about that when we get there. So basically they're saying it could usher in, you know, the sciences being more advanced. This could be the first step. Like, for example, when the new iPhone came out or the first iPhone that ushered in a whole new era of smart technology and smartphones. I believe that's what they're referring to. But here's the big one. And they admit it's pretty thin. The cure could be used as a vaccine that would immunize the people of Westeros from the White Walkers. The body, when infected, starts to turn out antibodies, right? But the infection grows too quickly, and our body isn't able to defeat it. What they're saying is they infect the body with grayscale and immediately cutting off the infected sites. Then the body should keep creating the antibodies that can have the upper hand in wiping out the rest of the grayscale. Being vaccinated with grayscale could result in giving you immunity to becoming a white. And because we have been able to tie grayscale to Valyria with mythology and history and thus grouping it with other important things that have the power to kill a White Walker. So they're saying they create immune humans. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think this is all pretty crazy and out there. And maybe that's just me. I don't know how you make that connection that if you could create an immunization to grayscale, which would be great for this whole population to not have to worry about that anymore. But how does that directly translate to you might be immune against the White Walkers or getting turned? And you certainly wouldn't be immune to dying. So if you were killed, you'd just be killed and not come back as a white. Yeah, but that would be way better than having your fallen armies now fighting against you. Oh, yeah, of course. I just don't know that we have the time, the science, or the ability to do any of that. I agree with you. I just thought it was pretty fun. And the way they were correlating it to having immunity 
is they're saying it comes from the side of fire. So dragons, dragon glass, and Valerian steel, they're putting this in the category of that time frame and its ability maybe to be also a weapon. Yeah, I think that's also a leap too, though, is automatically sort of, it's a little bit of a jump in logic to say that it goes to the fire side. Uh, But I, I think we would need to hear more about that. And we don't get enough of the conversation because a lot of people just don't know the ins and outs of Grayscale. We know the ins now. It's pussy. <laughs> I mean, this is the first time we're seeing it on the show that it's revealed there is another cure for this, at least one that Sam's willing to try, although maybe not successfully. We'll see. So again, I just wanted to start that conversation with our Clatchers, if they thought any of that was viable. Absolutely. And speaking of the walkers, we were talking about them and the Night King last time. And we had some confusion about this 13th Lord Commander business. And our Clatchers wrote in to help us out about that. Thank you to Eric and also to Rachel, who sent us some research. The Knights King of the books and the Night King of the show are essentially different beings. The being from the books is the 13th Lord Commander whose story we know, and the show version is the first walker created by the children. Here's a quote from George R.R. Martin. As for the Knight's King, the form I prefer, in the books he is a legendary figure akin to Bran the Builder and no more likely to have survived to the present day than I have. So Rachel says essentially she believes the showrunners used the Night King as a figurehead for the others so the audience could concentrate on a central villain. They've made some other tweaks that she believes are to help streamline their storytelling. And I 100% agree. As soon as we were done podcasting, I was thinking, well, maybe it's just totally different book to show and I'm getting it all jumbled in my mind. Thank you very much for that. Back to our episode two. Let's talk about the title meaning behind Stormborn. This obviously refers to Danny. It's one of her many titles that she's used throughout the series. This woman's the god with many names. (laughs) I noticed they started shortening it now when they refer to her. Some of them have been dropped. But they do refer to the infamous knight for which she gets her name in this episode. Varys talks about it. Right before the rebels arrived at King's Landing at the end of Robert's Rebellion, her mother was sent to safety on Dragonstone. She went into labor soon afterward during a massive storm that smashed to pieces what little was left of the Targaryen fleet anchored at Dragonstone before dying in childbirth. Being born during this ill-omened storm, she earned the nickname Daenerys Stormborn. Also, according to the prophecy of the prince that was promised, this figure would be reborn amidst salt and smoke and pull the flame Lightbringer to combat the darkness. And this is why a lot of people now believe she will be the person of that prophecy. Besides the first dialogue, do you feel like this was a good name for this episode? It didn't really follow all the way through the way it normally does, at least not that I could see. I mean, you could say, and this is a stretch, that their plan, their war plan, was born from the storm because it was storming out. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just trying too hard. Well, they are discussing, and we'll get to that in the scene, how there is no gender in the High Valyrian language for the prince that was promised. It could be male or female. So perhaps this is just foreshadowing for the future. Next, we have new faces and places, and we didn't see anybody brand new this episode, but we got a reappearance of two characters that haven't been in the show for a while. The first was Hot Pie, and we haven't seen him since back when he parted ways with Arya. They were taken together when Yorin recruited them for the Night's Watch. They went to Harrenhal together, and she left him at 
Vian at the crossroads, which is where she's meeting back up with him again here. What I thought was cute about that, he still refers to her as Ari, the boy's name that she took. And what was kind of nice, but also kind of dreary, was that we haven't seen a character on this show with such naive happiness in a very, very long time, right? And Hot Pie still has it. So it was kind of nice because he hasn't felt anything that we have as viewers or our characters have. But it's also kind of disheartening because we know what is to come. He was also talking about how they're both survivors. I was thinking to myself, oh, poor Hot Pie. If you only knew, she has (laughs) been through so much. You know, it's so different, the journey the two of them have been on. I wish she would have just stayed there with him at the inn. (laughs) Well, if she did, she would have saw Brienne a couple seasons back. And Hot Pie brought that up as well. The fact that she hadn't met up with the big lady. (laughs) (laughs) We also got the reappearance of Randall Tarley, Sam's father. In the books, he's a fierce, ruthless general who fought on the Targaryen side during Robert's Rebellion and commanded the victory at the Battle of Ashford, which was the only defeat King Robert ever suffered in that war. And that goes to show you just how strong of a military man he is and why they're trying to recruit him to their side. To reiterate from last time, we did not see this episode. The Hound with Beric and Thoros, The White Walkers, Bran at the Wall, Tormund and the Wildlings, or Bronn. It's been a minute since we've seen Bronn. I'm kind of wondering what he's up to. Let's jump into our crow's eye view. This opens at Dragonstorm with the thunderstorm raging outside, and that's the moment I was talking about where Varys tells Danny, on a night like this, you came into this world. I remember that storm. All the dogs howled throughout the night. And she says it doesn't feel like a homecoming. I think she's a little worried he's going to start talking her up she makes a reference to when Illyrio used to falsely tell Viserys, the people of Westeros drink secret toast to your health, mm. and they sow dragon banners and all of this baloney that he was feeding to him that they would rejoice if he came back to Westeros. And sh- she knows that that's not really going to happen in the way they're viewing her army. This set the scene for how Daenerys is going to be as far as a ruler. She no longer has any of the little naivetes that she used to. I'm sure there's going to be certain things, of course, that she's not going to know what to do. But right away, she's showing control, showing her strength, and even telling the people that believe have her hand in trust that she doesn't necessarily trust them and they need to watch their back. Do you think that's what the whole back and forth with Varys was? Just setting an example for the rest of her council? I'm not going to overlook this because they never really had that conversation. No, they didn't. Her and Varys. She knew what he did. We were assuming it was being overlooked, but she has to put that out there. Well, I think it was partially that and also partially for Varys. She knows that he is out for himself and she needs to know if after all this, you don't like me, are you going to start scheming behind my back? It's hard to be on top. If you can just imagine it, people want your position. People that are closest to you are often the people that are the worst for you. I also think she had to give Varys the chance to vent it out. And I love the quote where he says, incompetence should not be rewarded with blind loyalty. As long as I have my eyes, I'll use them. Yeah. I'm going to keep telling you what you need to hear, even if you don't necessarily like it. But so long as I believe that you are the best in this position, and I do, I will continue to serve you. You wish to know where my true loyalties lie? Not with any king or queen, but with the people. The people who suffer under despots and prosper under just rule. The people whose hearts you aim to win. If you demand blind allegiance, I respect your wishes. 
Grey Worm can behead me, or your dragons can devour me. But if you let me live, I will serve you well. I will dedicate myself to seeing you on the Iron Throne, because I choose you. Because I know that people have no better chance than you. So we talked about this a little bit last time, that I really like the style, the way that she's bringing her allies in and the way she's ruling over them. It feels more like a bit of a democracy, that she listens to them. And yet later, she does this really weird thing of saying, John has to bend the knee and telling Tyrion to put that in there. It felt so out of place, and I can't understand why she reacted that way. Unless, as I said last time, she's threatened because he's calling himself king in the north. But I thought she was sort of past all of this. I have to be the ruler and sit on the Iron Throne. This is going to sound dumb, but you know how when you're in school and the first couple weeks of school, your teacher was super strict? Yeah. And then as school went along, <laughs> she would be more and more lenient? Yeah. And that's to get your respect. Maybe that's it. She's going to start off very hard and get to know Jon Snow and let it be known she's not someone to mess with. And then as the trust builds, which we hope it will, we'll see more and more of the Danny that we know. I hope that's the case. I'm very nervous about this meeting between the two of them. Well, next, they're interrupted when Grey Worm says Melisandre has come to meet her. But it's very clever how she introduced herself. I don't know if I brought this up last time, that she only said she was a former slave who was happy to meet the Breaker of Chains. It was Varys who had to step in and tell Daenerys who she was. Yeah, but I love how Danny was like, well, this is good timing because I just said that I'd forgive people that served the wrong king. (laughs) Varys. Won't let it go with (laughs) Varys here. Well, it's true because uh, what a hypocrite. We were just talking about this, and you're going to (laughs) now... Yeah, but he has every right, and we saw this last season, to be afraid of, to be wary of the red priests and priestesses after what happened to him when he was a boy. Of course. And Danny makes a point to say there aren't many followers of the Lord of Light in Westeros yet. I wondered why that was important, and we do see this becoming more and more prominent. And Melisandre brings up the prophecy again, The long night is coming, and only the prince who is promised can bring the dawn. (laughs) This is where Missandei points out that the noun has no gender in High Valyrian. That was one of those places where I was like, what is the point of putting this in here? Another big neon sign from the books. We know that you're all on to that, that it's non-gender specific. It could act as a red herring. Like everyone thinks Jon Snow, but think about this one too. You know, it could be that as well. Well, that's what I mean, though. The fans, that's what they've all been saying for a while now. And it's like the Double Ds realized that, so they had to very obviously put it into the scene. But to give you background from the books, Maester Aemon tells this to Sam, as well as the fact that dragons are asexual in nature and can breed interchangeably when needed. I had forgotten that, and you brought it up a couple podcasts ago. How do they breed? How does this work? And I also thought it was critical that Melisandre pretty much implies she's done trying to interpret these prophecies. She's made a lot of mistakes in trying to read the flames before and figure out what the Lord of Light is telling her. All she knows for sure is she believes Danny and Jon Snow both have a role to play. Well, I loved how she was like that this time. She learned her lesson because she was so adamant about <laughs> Stannis. And I think she's learned her lesson. I mean, the look on her face, she was even like, prophecies are dangerous things. I believe you have a role to play, as does another, which is a nice way of saying, you know, at this point, I don't really know. I had all my cards on this cat, I'm but not like I'm coming you. to you because the other one that I thought kicked me out. So 
Well, she she's she can't say now you're the new one right. <laughs> because she knows that it can't only be Danny. And she explained, I think she tries to tone it down a little, but she has to give the truth. All these things that John has managed to do, he let the wildlings through in order to save them. He united the northern houses. Also, they could fight against the walkers. Thought it was very interesting. This is the first time Danny is hearing anything about something called walkers, correct? She doesn't know about the long night and the threat, the others coming from the north. I think it's the first time someone spoke to her about it. But long ago, she did have a dream or... A vision. Vision. In the House of the Undying where it was snowing. Yeah, and even the wall, opening the wall and she was walking through. So she had something that she probably put in the back of her head like, that was weird. Maybe she'll piece this together. I don't know. I don't think before now, though, this has been explained to her any kind of way. I know that they're waiting for John to tell the story. But if I was Danny in this situation, I'd be like, hold on. Wait a second. What are these walkers? Mm -hmm. What are you talking about now? This threat coming from the north that we have to unite everyone? Well, I I think she knows the lore of it, like the past of it, the stories that have been told. She must know that. Yeah, but... Melisandre's telling her here, they're, they're here now. John's fighting them now. He's uniting an army. She doesn't question that. It's very weird. But she does agree to hear John out, basically after Tyrion vouches for him. I can't speak to prophecies or visions in the flames, but I like Jon Snow and I trusted him. And I am an excellent judge of character. If he does rule the North, he would make a valuable ally. The Lannisters executed his father and conspired to murder his brother. Jon Snow has even more reason to hate Cersei than you do. And they send this raven. Now, luckily, somebody put this online so we can read what it actually says, the letter from Tyrion to Jon. It says, Queen Daenerys Targaryen, first of her name, invites you to Dragonstone. My queen commands the combined forces of Dorne and the Reach, an ironborn fleet, legions of Unsullied, a Dothraki horde, and three dragons. The Seven Kingdoms will bleed as long as Cersei sits on the Iron Throne. Join us. Together we can end her tyranny. I appeal to you, one bastard to another, for all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. Tyrion Lannister, Hand of the Queen. Very elegant. Beautifully written. I told you. See, he didn't say bend a knee. No, he didn't. I thought for sure that was in there. No, when they were reading it on the show, they would have shown that, I think. Is she going to find that out, though? No. Be like, Tyrion. <laughs> I, I, I feel like Tyrion is sort of a little bit skating on thin ice. Right? Really? Because some of the things that he tried to put into place to help in her absence in Marine went horribly wrong. None of that really worked out too well. Now he suggested this plan that they not attack King's Landing head on. He doesn't want her to be Queen of the Ashes. He comes up with this idea to instead use Westerosi troops to lay the siege so they don't see her as an army of savages, while the Unsullied take Casterly Rock. Sending the fleet down to Dorne turned out to be a horrible mistake. They just got killed by Euron's <laughs> Kraken Armada. And now he's tiptoeing around the Jon Snow situation because he really likes him, and I know that's going to get tense. So is there going to come a point, you know, she's really, really blindly trusting Tyrion right now. She's going to say, none of your plans are really panning out that well. Please don't. I don't believe so, because he has shown that he's done well. I don't see it the way you see it. I don't see, like, he's failed her in any ways. I should have let Stannis kill you. Not that I think he's failed her, and I hope it doesn't come to that, 
but I guess that the seed of doubt has been planted in my mind because of the conversation she had with Lady Olena later. I'm guilty. Is that what you want to hear? And we had a lot of those little reminders about who you are through the episode, right? Nymeria reminding Arya who she is, which could go either way. She could be reminding her she has to be part of her pack, which prompts her to go north and reunite with her family. Or she could be reminding her that she is wild and savage and is supposed to go off and do her own thing, prompting her to continue on with her kill list. And then here we have Lady Olena reminding Danny, you are a dragon. So how does Danny interpret that? Which way does she go with it? And that all kind of brings us through Danny's discussion with the council. We talked about most of that. Another thing Lady Olena brought up in there when both Danny and Tyrion were saying they didn't want her to be queen of the ashes was that Marjorie tried to be a good queen and a loving queen and now she's dead. The people won't obey Danny unless they fear her. What Danny and Tyrion were saying made way more sense. It was a lot more elegant. We know that the plans already are falling apart, but it was a lot more elegant. There was a lot more detail to it than just, let's go. We got these people. We got the dragons. Let's just go in there and, and kick some ass. I... And the way Tyrion broke it down to everybody. Cersei would try to rally the lords of Westeros by appealing to their loyalty, their love for their country. If we besiege the city with foreigners, we prove her point. Our army should be Westerosi. And I suppose we are providing the Westerosi. You are. Lady Greyjoy will escort you home to Sunspear, and her Iron Fleet will ferry the Dornish army back up to King's Landing. The Dornish will lay siege to the capital, alongside the Tyrell army, two great kingdoms united against Cersei. So, your master plan is to use our armies. Forgive me for asking, but why did you bother to bring your own? The Unsullied will have another objective. For decades, House Lannister has been the true power in Westeros, and the seat of that power is Costly Rock. Grey Worm and the Unsullied will sail for the rock and take it. It was beautifully done, and it left everyone without a word to say. I agreed with you when we were only in the planning stages. But now that we've seen the fruits of that kind of bear out and it didn't work out too well, I wonder if Danny's going to be looking back in hindsight saying, oh man, I should have just freaking taken the dragons in and, and took King's Landing while I had the chance. I mean, she does famously sort of underutilize the dragons yeah. and she tries all of these moves that don't wind up working out in the past. And she has to end up eventually coming in with her forces, the Unsullied coming in with the dragons in order to get the job done. And she feels bad. She doesn't want to have to kill these people, but that's how she's won all of her battles so far. I know, but I don't think she wants to become the typical Targaryen who lays waste to everything. And it makes sense to me. She wants, she doesn't want to just come in, destroy everything, and, and then say, I'm the queen, and have the whole world hate her and be after her the whole time. Oh, definitely. Her line of thinking makes total sense, and I'm, I'm happy Tyrion was advising her that way, and he wants to see her become a certain kind of queen. I just know that it's not seemingly working for her when it comes to battle strategy. She always has to end up using them anyway. And by the way, we're doing all of this really complex planning, right? Tyrion seems to have thought of everything where this is concerned. Nobody thought to say maybe we should be on the lookout for Euron? 
I mean, last time Theon and Yara yeah. left him, he told them, I'm building a new fleet and I'm coming after you. And they just haven't said a word about it since then. Now, that's a good question. And that leads into what I was going to ask when we got to that scene, but I'll do it now. Every pirate movie you ever see, they have people looking out. <laughs> people at the top of the ships. Yes. On the lookout tower. The crow's looking, nest. Yeah. Speaking looking of, for everybody. Funny. And letting the captains know we have enemy ships coming. Prepare for battle. And no one was on a lookout. They got close enough where they started shooting and he was close enough to bring that Kraken hammer down and walk over. That is not Danny's fault. That's just stupidity. Yeah, I know. This was crazy. Now, obviously, we missed some of the initial part of the confrontation because we were seeing it from Theon and Yara's point of view below decks. And we did hear some explosions starting to go off. By the time they got up there, the battle was in full swing. But that was really quick. So you are right that they had to be pretty damn close by the time she found out. And these ships, by the way, way bigger than their ships. I don't know how this guy had time to build these. You and I try not to get stuck on these timeline practical matters, but this is one area that we did bring up previously. Seems to be a little bit of a stumbling block, how he could possibly build. It's not even just a fleet like what they have. It's a whole armada. They're huge, really elaborate ships. And we had kind of wondered out what was on the front of them. It looked like more than just a masthead on the prow of their ship. And it is, in fact, some kind of clamp that holds them to the ship they're attacking and pulls down a a kind of walkway. Yeah. So they should have been aware way before they were that close that they were coming. If those are the bosses at the bottom of that ship, they really should have been aware. (laughs) When Danny gets this news... How do you think she's going to handle Euron's fleet and her next move here? I know you're saying she has this idea of the kind of queen she wants to be, but all of these things combined, do you think she does let the dragons loose now? I don't know, because she's about to get news about the North, and we don't know where that's going to go. So she might just sideline her whole take King's Landing, which is really what I wanted her to do from the beginning, but she's not going to be able to ignore Euron if they keep coming after them. Well, no, we know she doesn't because of our look at the next episode, which I won't say anything. <laughs> we'll get we'll to that get at to the that end. later. Yeah. Coming back to this scene, I want to just say one more thing about Lady Olena, the conversation that she has in private with Danny later, where she tells her to be a dragon. A fun fact from the books, Lady Olena is one of very few characters left alive, old enough to remember when House Targaryen was in power, even before the Mad King was there. There was a long line of stable Targaryen rulers. I don't know if you remember, but on TV, she once said that when she was young, she was even betrothed to some Targaryen or other. And in the books, this was one of King Aegon V's sons. But she wound up getting out of it and marrying Luther Tyrell instead. And one more thing before we leave that scene. The carved and painted table, we did notice that the Dornish forces were marked with a snake on top of it to show the Sand Snake's takeover. Yeah, it used to be the Martell house symbol, which I think is the sun and spear. I was going to bring that up, but I don't really know if it's relevant now that we've seen what's happening with Euron taking Alaria and Tyene. Well, yeah, but I wanted to bring it up because what do you think is going to happen to their land now? Yeah, that's a really important question. There's a lot of people left in Dorne and a whole Dornish army. Now, I suppose Danny will still continue to command that army without any other leadership present. I don't really know. And the last scene in Dragonstone that we didn't talk about on the instant coffee cast was with Masandi and Grey Worm. You finally get 
the romantic scene between the two of them. I'm not really sure what to make of it or why it's in here, but she goes to say goodbye to him, and he very touchingly admits that she is his weakness. He tells her that when Unsullied are young, the masters learn their fears and make them face them, but Grey Worm had no fears. He wasn't the biggest or strongest, but he was the bravest until he met her. And then they go to bed together after a fashion. It was a beautiful scene and a little bit of a reprieve from the intense Game of Thrones. But I wonder if that shows that he's going to die soon. No, we, we always think that, right? On this show, if they get a moment of peace or happiness, sort of foreshadow something yeah. bad for them in the future. But I think you're right that we just needed that human connection that break from all of the intensity and bad things that are happening elsewhere, I think that's going to be harder and harder to find as we move along. Let's move over to Winterfell. We talked about the scene in the courtyard with Sansa and Jon as they read the letter from Tyrion. And Davos kind of talks Jon into the fact that they could really use the army and the dragons they mentioned in the note to fight the walkers. And simultaneously, the maester brings the raven from San at the Citadel, which I think just pushes Jon into that decision. Again, John has a really difficult decision to make. Yeah, and we kind of discussed last episode when he then goes and tells his people, you were saying, why don't they just listen to him by now? I had that same gut reaction, but I had mentioned how a lot of the things he's bringing up are really controversial. I mean, what he was trying to do with the wildlings got him killed by the Night's Watch the first time around. And I was more concerned about Sansa continuing to sort of go up against him in these group discussions because it's reinforcing the fears that they all have. John needs to keep assuaging them that these are the right decisions. I mean, there's not much he can do, right? These are all difficult. He doesn't really have any good options, but I, I think he's making the best choice that he can. And I was really hoping that by empowering her to step up into this position, it would force her to continue to mature a little bit and understand the gravity of the situation. You all crowned me your king. I never wanted it. I never asked for it. But I accepted it because the North is my home. It's part of me and I will never stop fighting for it, no matter the odds. The odds are against us. None of you have seen the army of the dead. None of you. One of our clatchers, Earl, wrote in and said, he believes the public disagreements between Sansa and Jon serve to establish Sansa as a voice of authority within the council. So when Jon turns over the ruling authority of Winterfell to her, the council feels more okay with that. It might have worked out, but Littlefinger's there. And we know that he's going to exploit that. Yes, and he also says in this email not to forget how much influence he's had over her in the past, that she lied for him over Lysa's suicide. She changed her appearance when she was trying to follow his instructions, and she's sort of learning how to become a schemer. And she was going along with it when she thought she was going to have to marry him before he told her he was actually giving her to Ramsay. And she hasn't said anything to anyone about that. Like, hey, John, by the way, the whole way that I wound up in this situation Hmm. was Littlefinger forced this marriage upon me and stuck me with this crazy guy. I'm a little surprised that that's just kind of fallen off the radar. Well, the main narrative with Littlefinger right now is that he just saved them. Absolutely. But do you see a common thread of him and Sansa just aren't talking enough about the important things that I feel they should be saying before he leaves her? 
I mean, does he even tell her? What does she do if they face an attack while he's gone to go get Danny? I don't know. And it is very concerning. My hopes is that when Arya gets there, Arya is the free spirit that we know and she doesn't play the same games. Hopefully she will be the other whisper in her other ear. Hopefully steers her in the right direction. Yeah, Earl says that there's two hopes for her in order to maintain grounded on this side of things, and that's Arya and also Brienne. For sure, so he echoes my opinion. And I do feel better with Brienne there. I don't think he's going to let Littlefinger do anything too crazy where Sansa's concerned. But again, John had to make these decisions. He even, again, relayed to them, you haven't seen the walkers. You don't know what I've seen. This is what's best for us. What's alarming, Jon Snow is going on that journey very similar to what Ned Stark did. Well, as a last thought on this situation between Sansa and Littlefinger, which definitely is going to get stepped up a couple of notches no matter how it's handled once Jon leaves, because this is the opportunity he's been waiting for. Emily wrote in with a long email. It includes some other things as well. But when she was talking about these two, she says that, Sansa needs to step up in this situation and actually recommends that she go and talk to the Knights of the Vale directly. Uh, She has every right to do this, and she shouldn't be letting Littlefinger act as an intermediary between the two. And this is the whole cause for him saying, I saved you in the battle. Really, he has no right to that army. True, He has no right to the, the Knights of the Vale. And she believes that the Knights would look to Sansa as a leader if she stepped into this position. Yeah, I think that's how you take all of his power away from him, right? Yes, he saved them, but that's over and done with now. And it was using this army. And if they could take that back for themselves, there's no reason for him to be sitting at the head of it. And then they don't have to worry about him anymore. Let's talk about King's Landing next, because we didn't really get too far into this on the last podcast. It starts off with Cersei speaking to her assembly and trying to convince them that this is the Mad King's daughter, she has an army of savages, and most key, that she will destroy the Tyrell villages, rape and enslave the women. This is how she puts fear into them, tries to turn them against Lady Olena by saying, this is how Olena rewards you for centuries of service. And of course, she is going to be the one to protect the people, <clears throat> Cersei, but she needs the Lord's help to stop Danny. Of course, she's using the scare tactic. Danny is worse than me. Look how bad her family was. And even look how bad she has been already. And it's so played out and obvious, but what else do these people do? Where else do they have to turn to right now? And they have every right to be afraid to them. Cersei's danger is even more real. She just blew up the Great Sept of Baelor with a crap ton of wildfire. They don't know how much of that she has left. I mean, that's a pretty scary notion. And Randall Tarly is the only one to step up and point out, well, Danny has three grown dragons, the same as Aegon when he conquered the Seven Kingdoms. How do we fight that? Yeah, I think this was GOT's way of letting us know Randall Tarly is not just that mean asshole father. He's also a really good leader. He hasn't done the really out there horrible things that a lot of our characters have done already. And he's actually against those things. Yeah, he's terrible to his son. (laughs) But when it comes to his oaths, he takes them seriously. And we did discuss how he's a famous military man. And this is exactly what Jamie is trying to pull him on his side for to be his ranking general. And we discussed how we thought he might have gotten him onto his side after pointing out that Olena is just bent on revenge and offering him the Warden of the South. Which is true. He's not lying. Olena is all about revenge right now. I mean, this whole thing is about what happened to her family. Do you think we see that next episode? That he's got Randall Tarly with him? 
Yeah, I think so, unfortunately. I mean, I really wish he would just wake up and be on our side, but it doesn't seem that way as of yet. The bigger news that we just brushed over last time was what happened below the Red Keep with Cersei talking to Kyburn about the dragon skulls. I had a little time to think about this since then. In the episode, Kyburn makes this deductive reasoning. He references how they heard of Drogon being hurt in Daznak's pit with the yeah. people that had spears, and then goes to another jump that if they can be wounded, they can be killed. And that's how he's come up with this idea of the weapon he shows to her. He's had these blacksmiths laboring day and night. Powerful, but not invincible. Apparently, one of Daenerys' dragons was wounded by spears in the fighting pits of Meereen. They can be wounded, they can be killed. The finest artillers and blacksmiths in King's Landing have been laboring day and night, Your Grace. If you kindly pull that lever. And I believe what this actually is, is a custom-made ballista. I said it looked like a huge crossbow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just took weapons that were used back then and just made it better, massive, more powerful. This is what I was going to tell you after my research. I think I know where he got the idea from. During the Targaryen War of Conquest, the Dornish were actually able to kill Queen Rhaenys Targaryen's dragon, Meraxes, with a ballista bolt, but by shooting him in the eye. So if you go to the Blu-ray commentary, they give you all this great history and lore and facts. They say the only reason that they were able to hurt certain dragons and perhaps why Drogon was wounded in Daznak's pit was because he was a juvenile at the time. So they were able to pierce his hide in certain places, but dragon scales get thicker and harder as they age until full adult dragon hides are practically impervious and can only be pierced by another dragon. So... I don't know if maybe he's read this story about Meraxes and they're planning on shooting the dragons in the eye with this thing because I don't quite some aim. think they're going to go through their hides at this point. I know they're not fully adult, but they are grown a lot since last time we saw them. So I don't even know if that's going to take them down. But I also want to talk a little bit about why these dragon skulls are here in the first place and more from this histories and lore you have Grandmaster Pycelle narrating in the background, and he says, Thousands of years ago, Valyrian stumbled on the first dragon eggs in the mountains of the Fourteen Flames. Whatever aid they had to get them on their side is lost to history. But every educated person knows how the dragon lords conquered most of the known world, breaking the ancient Giscari Empire, enslaving a continent, building roads and bridges, an empire of marvels and misery, which is now a smoking wasteland, ash. By the way, I thought that was a good callback to what they're talking about here. Uh, in time, Aegon Targaryen and his sisters brought their three dragons who had escaped the doom to Westeros to regain his people's lost glory. For over a hundred years, they held the Seven Kingdoms. But when Targaryen fought Targaryen in the Civil War, the Dance of the Dragons, an angry mob stormed the Dragon Pit, the now ruined vault where they used to stable their beasts. Thousands died, five of the dragons lay dead. And thereafter, each generations of dragons grew smaller and smaller. Their skulls used to line the throne room of the Red Keep in order of birth. The oldest, Balerion, which is the one we see in the pits here, 
they called him Balerion the Dread, could swallow an ox whole. But the last skull was barely the size of a dog. Now, some people thought it was because they kept them chained up down there. It was a small, cramped space, and they weren't allowed to continue growing to their full height, much like maybe what would have happened to Danny's dragons, where she was keeping them. But other people thought this was a curse for the dragon civil war that they went through. Hmm. And they were just never the same afterward. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. We were actually able to visualize how small those dragons actually got. We saw a picture of it on Twitter, and we actually retweeted it. They're the size of a dog, but definitely cooler skulls. Do you think it's a result of dragons being chained up in confined places? I mean, if you put a fish in a small tank, it won't grow to the full size that it's able to. Yeah, like I said, that was one of the theories, that that's not how a dragon is meant to live, confined that way. But this was the first appearance of these dragon skulls since season one. I don't know if you remember, Arya found this area when she was lost. She was doing her training under Sirio Pharrell, and she was chasing cats. She got lost down here, and she stumbled on this area. I think she overheard a conversation between Illyrio and Varys down there, and she tried to tell Ned about it, but he didn't really understand. He didn't believe her. I don't know if we got a good look at the skulls when we were there that time. They did describe it in the books during this scene. Again, I mean, Kyburn is a genius. He's got a lot of good thoughts. He always has something to give Cersei and what she could use to fight. I just don't think this is going to do it against the dragons. Oh, man, I hope it doesn't. I mean, how shitty would it be if we finally get a huge battle and the dragons are there and we see them kicking ass and in that first battle we finally see all three of them fighting together just to see them start getting shot down right away by the first weapon invented to kill dragons. I mean, I hope they shoot it and a dragon catches it in its mouth, breaks it in half, gets pissed off, turns to the person using the ballista and the ballista and just blows it up with fire. We have a few more areas to talk about. Let's go over to the Citadel, where first we saw Archmaester Ebros examining Jorah's grayscale and saying the infection had spread too far and he should have caught off his arm the moment he was touched. Now, this can sometimes stop the spread. We've heard about this in books, people cutting off a finger or a toe that's infected, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's not foolproof. And it could be years before it kills him. I think they used to say 5 to 10 on the show. They're saying 10 to 20. Either way, it's much quicker, the amount of time it takes to affect the mind. What happens is the infection actually grows inward and starts warping the flesh of the brain. And that's what leads to madness. And he's got six months at most until that happens. It's real zombies. But here we see the maester just kind of -of matter-of-factly stating that there's nothing he can do. Normally in this case, we'd ship you right out, but since you were a knight, we'll give you a day. And then he stares at the sword to tell him, you can kill yourself honorably tonight. Yeah, and he just doesn't want to take the risk because when Sam brings up the book that Maester Pylos had written, he talks about how Pylos himself got grayscale and that would put him in danger if he was to perform the procedure. I love the little conversation they have with the book that the maester was writing. I don't like the title. Could be a little more poetic. Oh, the one he's researching to yeah. write? Yeah, the Wars of King Robert I. Such a random thing to throw in there. Some are saying that that is the Song of Ice of Fire. Ah, oh, that's a cool idea. I hadn't heard that yet. Later, Sam comes down to find Jorah in his cell writing a note to Danny. We also looked this up on the internet. They have screen captures of the note so you can read what it says. We have two versions, so we don't know which one is real. Yeah. (laughs) Mine has a dot, dot, dot in the middle, which you filled in. 
So first it says, Khaleesi, I went to the Citadel in the last hope that the maesters could treat me as you ordered. Even with all... Dot, dot, dot. The image I have was tweeted from Game of Thrones official, and it says, Even with all their arts, I am beyond any cure but the grave. I have had a longer life than I have deserved, and I only wish I could have lived to see the world you're going to build standing by your side. I have loved you since the moment I met you. Yeah, I had the ending part of that too. I was just missing that portion about what they could do for him, which is interesting. But then also at the end of mine, it says, um, after since the moment I met you, if there is dot, 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 and then signed Jorah, which is very intriguing. You know, was he interrupted writing that last part? And so what HBO put out on the internet took that last line out of there. And if so, what was he about to say? If there is a cure, they're not willing to give it to me. Oh, okay. I thought it was going to be more along the lines of their relationship because he was saying, I've loved you since the moment I met you. If there's any hope of that, if there's anything else I can do to serve you before that point. Oh, I see. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. But hopefully Jorah will make it far enough that we'll get to see the two of them on screen again. Because Sam does come in and decide to perform this dangerous procedure on his own. Sam to the rescue. He's like, I've never seen it done before, but I have this book here and I'm just going to follow along. It's like if I was going to fix your car, because you know I can't do that kind of stuff. And I just told you, I YouTubed it, so I'm going to take out your engine and I'm going to fix it based off of this YouTube video. And we talked about that last time, the nitty gritty of what he had to do to remove the entire affected tissue and apply the medicine. Do you have any thoughts on what this medicine could be he's putting on there to heal it? No, I think the initial medicine is to deal with the open wound. And I think he's going to get dragon glass. Yeah, because once he's cutting it off, wasn't there a liquid that he was There's supposed like to yeah. put on? Now you think that maybe that actually has powdered dragon glass in it? Oh, maybe. You might be right. You know, he might not even know that, just that it's labeled to, to use for this. But I think that would be interesting. Or maybe it doesn't work entirely and he decides to get the dragon glass. Yeah. But what's he going to do now when he just has all this open tissue He'll all over his wrapped. body? He'll probably be wrapped. He'll be wrapped. Okay, I can't think about that anymore. I'm sorry, this got me last time too. This would be weird, but I thought initially when he said he was going to have to tear out (laughs) his scabs, I pictured him with like a shard of glass, which would be the dragon glass, and that's what he was using as the knife (laughs) to kind of chop at it like you're chopping at ice. Real quick, when Sam was talking to the Meister and he was giving him the books in the library... I saw this on Emergency Awesome. One of the books he was handing was The History of Targaryens. Mm. And that's not the one we saw him reading last time. So he has been taking these multiple books to read up. Well, I'm not sure. He was handing it to the maester to put away. Oh, okay. So I'm not sure. Who was reading it. Right. Well, let's move on to The Inn at the Crossroads. We already discussed that reunion between Arya and Hot Pie. With the beautiful soup scene. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that was cool is when Arya was talking to Hot Pie and Hot Pie was talking about the butter that he uses. And she says flippantly, I've been baking pies, didn't use butter. She's talking about the pie she made (laughs) of the dead sons. Yeah, (laughs) It's also snowing at the end. I don't know if we mentioned that, but we're gradually starting to see that move further and further south throughout the episodes. 
And we also talked about the next scene with Arya getting the reunion with Nymeria, although maybe not the way she hoped. Nymeria at first snarling at her at the front of this wolf pack, looking huge and intimidating, but then softening once Arya starts to talk to her and she recognizes her. And Arya asks her to come home with her. But Nymeria turns and leaves with the pack. This is Arya's line where she whispers, that's not you. Yeah, we spoke about in the last episode how we felt about that scene, how it resonated with us. And we also were trying to figure out what that meant. That's not you. When we talked on the instant cast, I hadn't watched the inside the episode yet, later that they do with David and Dan. And he did talk about how this is meant to reflect or echo the scene from season one that she had with Ned, where Ned was talking to her about her future. He was telling her something along the lines of she wouldn't be a knight, but she would marry a wealthy, good man and have children. And Arya stops him and says, no, that's Sansa. It's not me. Right. So she's referring to her own wildlife and how, in Nymeria's case, she's no longer inclined to be anyone's pet. And she can understand because Arya feels the same way. She's the same kind of spirit. Yeah. So I think the double Ds confirm there what we were feeling. But again, it just still leads me to that question of how does that influence her? Does it influence her to go be with her pack or to continue being the wild loner? Well, we still haven't gotten to that part in the trailer before the season even started where Sansa says her quote about the lone wolf outside of the pack. And we were discussing it could be Sansa, it could be Jon Snow. This could be a foreshadowing. Okay, so you're thinking now this is the conversation between Arya and Sansa that we will get that reunion between them? Perhaps. Maybe I'm just sinister. I still really think that she was not meant to go back to Winterfell. There's a part of me that thinks she might still move closer to it, but then have one of those near misses again, where she finds out that John is not there anymore. He's left. She doesn't know that Sansa's there. I don't know, some type of misunderstanding. And she takes that message to heart that it's not her to go back and lead an easier life because she doesn't know that they're planning for the battle there at Winterfell, right? To her, that would be going home. And she decides to continue on with her kill list. I don't know. They're going to make her turn around again. just doesn't seem right. (laughs) It's a lot of traveling for her to do. Plus, I really think Sansa needs Arya there right now. That's definitely true. Maybe she runs into the Hound on her way there. Yeah, I heard some theories conjecturing that this is where we finally see the two of them link up. But I just thought the Hound has to be further north right now. And at the rate she's going geographically, I can't see that working. Although they don't really seem to be too concerned about those details right now on the show. So do you think we'll see Nymeria again? The wolf watch part of me would love to say yes for the future, but that did feel like a bit of goodbye. They knew we wanted them to reunite at some point. So they gave us the moment for her to say that to Nymeria. They never had that closure after she chased her off in season one. This was a chance to say, I still remember you. I'll never forget you, but I get it. You have to go be who you are. Yeah, I definitely think we will not see her this season, but maybe next season she comes in and just saves somebody. At a pivotal moment. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be awesome. (laughs) Her and Ghost need to link back up. He needs to become part of that pack because John certainly isn't making any use of him. Where has he left him this time? I don't know. If I was John, I would keep him safe. 
because everyone else keeps dying, all the other wolves. He's not keeping him by his side, but I don't think he's keeping him safe anywhere either. I can't even remember. I, I feel like the last time we saw him was at the wall. I think John lets him roam free and do his thing. You think he took him to Winterfell? Yeah, for okay. sure. Hmm. This brings us to the last scene aboard the ship where we go into this attack by Euron's armada. Just after, by the way, we hear Yara saying that Theon's going to be her advisor and protector when she's queen. Let's talk about this battle sequence for a minute. From the moment that gangway, whatever you want to call it, clamps down onto the ship and the men start rushing forward onto Yara's ship. It doesn't feel like a typical battle sequence to me. I kept thinking that everything was moving so fast. I couldn't even keep track of who was fighting or what was happening. It was very dark. All I could see was blood flying everywhere. Why do you think this tone, this battle scene? Because it was such mayhem and everyone was caught so off guard. Everyone was discombobulated and they wanted us to feel that as well. Kind of confused. Like, what the hell's going on? Everything's moving so fast. Yeah, like we're in Theon and Yara's position. Right. Walking into that. Mm, That makes sense. It also makes Euron and his men look more like crazy people. Oh my God, Euron. He's a badass. And we did talk about this in the last episode. He just would not go down. He would not go down. Then we had the uncle against niece scene. You know, something that I thought about for a while now. When they were all down at the bottom of the ship, we saw signs of reek already. It was the reek part of him that automatically went to bring Alaria another drink when she told him to. That was a whole setup. Like we saw that reek is still there. And it makes sense the more you think about it. This whole scene that happens, what Theon went through, is not something you can just get over. You know, it looked like he was getting better, but it was still right there under the surface. Yeah, if you think about it in modern terminology, I know I talk about this on a lot of podcasts, but he really is a classic case of PTSD. No joking around. He's been through some intense traumas. And as you said, everything that's happening in this scene are triggers of that trauma. So the first trigger is Alaria and Yara getting sexual together. I think that makes him uncomfortable, makes him think about it. Then her ordering him around, as you said, probably reminds him of Ramsay ordering him around. And goodness, once they walk up and start to see that battle the bloodshed everywhere, he's already borderline frozen in place. Yeah. But especially once confronted with Euron and he takes Yara, and that's the real moment of truth, he totally freezes and then flees, which is one of two options when you're confronted with a difficult situation. Definitely a major blow to Danny. To lose this fleet. Yeah. She still has ships, but this was, I think, the bulk of the ships that she had. Oh, for sure. And I know it wasn't a full armada like Euron's, but it looked like a pretty decent-sized fleet. There were also a couple of book callbacks here. So the ship is called Silence. And in the books, that's because Euron has all of his crew members' tongues cut out. So they can't speak about any of this stuff. They also seem to be combining... There is no Victarion character on TV. And that was Euron's older brother in the books. So we see here that Euron's axe has the Kraken tentacles on it, and it was his brother who had a weapon like this from the books. There's also been a lot of guesses over the last couple episodes as to what Euron's gift was going to be to Cersei. Chris W. had wrote in before this to say that he thought Euron might kill Tyrion as a gift to bring to her. 
And Michael said, there was no question Ilaria was the gift Euron intended to give. He's going to keep Yara for himself, most likely to kill. And then you have Ilaria and Tyene. And Cersei will be allowed to determine their fates because, of course, these were the two most responsible for her daughter Marcella's death. Mm. You had Tyene who made the poison and Ilaria who administered it by kissing her. And Michael has some grim thoughts on what he thinks is going to happen there. Tyene will be given to the mountain in front of Ilaria. And once dead, Cersei takes Ilaria down to the dungeons to kill her with the new crossbow. Oh, boy. He also says he's not surprised that Theon made the decision to jump ship, but he's now feeling less and less confident we will see redemption from him. He's just hoping no one else on the boat that survived saw what happened, because if there were any witnesses to his act of cowardice, there won't be much sympathy for him. And that's definitely true. As I said, if he does choose to go back to Danny, I don't know what he could even say to make that right. So I don't think that's his move. I think no. he keeps running. I'm done with him emotionally. I've seen enough. Yeah, you said that last time. I said I, I still have that glimmer that I would like to see him try to go and save Yara, but I can't even see in practicality how he would do that. So I don't think we will. All right, Jason, that wraps up our crow's eye view. On to Wolf Watch, we did talk about Nymeria. I just want to say that this confirms the fan theories from the books because there were reports that a large wolf was leading a pack in the Riverlands. We saw this mainly through Arya's wolf dreams of it, but we didn't know for sure that it was Nymeria and what was going on. Now the TV show has confirmed that for us. And also about our other wolf, Ghost, Brian Cogman said on Twitter that a scene between John and Ghost was not only scripted but filmed for this episode, but was then cut from the final version. Hmm. Why is it always with the wolves? <laughs> My goodness. Because you love the wolves. Stop cutting them. And our Raven rating for this episode. What do you give it on a scale of 1 to 10? My Raven rating is 8.5. I love the episode. Like always, Game of Thrones leaves you feeling something, and this time it was despair and disappointment. Yeah, for Theon. So you were higher for the last episode. Well, yeah, I mean, I was pumped that it was back and all the storylines, and it felt like we were finally winning. But you know Game of Thrones, right? When you think you're comfortable, they slap you in the face. And I was a little lower than you last time. I was at a 9. I'm going to go with a 9.2 for this episode. We're finally getting that lead up to the John and Danny scene, which I can't wait to see. And also, hopefully, Danny learning of the walkers. We got the battle scene that gave us the action at the end. The stakes are building. One of my disappointments is I really thought in episodes one and two, we would have more focus on two groups, the White Walkers, which we saw for just a short clip in episode one, and Bran. I mean, he was left out of so much of some of these seasons. I thought he was going to start to become truly pivotal early on in this season seven. And so we've only gotten a quick clip of him as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about Bran. But with the White Walkers, let's really think about this. They are pretty spectacular to look at when they're fighting, right? Because they're pretty badass. But they don't talk. At least we don't think they talk. We've never seen them talk. So all they can show you is them marching. And they would probably reveal more about the army than they want to right now. So I anticipate we still get only glimpses and short glimpses of the White Walkers. And probably only when we see Bran in the scene. But I don't believe there's too much they can do right now as far as the White Walkers, unless they show us with Bran using his sight to see them, or maybe warging into the crows. I think when we really start to see a lot of the White Walkers in these episodes is when we are in trouble. 
And for most valuable bannerman, my MVB goes to someone from House Mormont. <laughs> and that's Jorah. Because man, did he goes through some shit in this episode. <laughs> and you know he just keeps doing it for Danny. My goodness, what would this man not do for her? She told him to go cure that grayscale, and he's stopping at nothing to do it. I agree. That's a good MVB. Um, I guess I, we should say Euron, but F that. Oh, can't do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go Tyrion because his speech was awesome, and also the way he handled the note to Jon Snow. But I have to go to Sam this time. He's the one working behind the scenes, getting the knowledge. He's the one healing your MVB. Yep. Sam has stepped it up. He's come a long way since the Sam we first met. And I believe he is a pivotal cog in this Game of Thrones. I would have said that if I hadn't already given it to him last episode. <laughs> Let's talk Clatcher's comments. We've already gone over some of them in the crow's eye, but we have a few more. Linda wrote in to ask which book has the story about Cersei's past that we talked about last time, her being passed over as Rhaegar's wife. She's mid-book two, and I'm going to look into this. I haven't had the opportunity. I really can't remember which book it's from, but if any of you Clatchers do have that knowledge out there, if you could just email it to us. Andrew wrote to us, my new question is what happens when Davos sees Melisandre at Dragonstone? Yeah, he's going to be pissed to see her. And as a matter of fact, Jon Snow might be pissed as well. Oh, he's the one who... Banished her. He banished her, but she's not really disobeying his order. She did leave. I mean, he didn't tell her where to go. It's going to be Davos that has the real problem because A, he wanted to see her killed not exiled, and because she was allowed to live, now she gets to serve under Danny. <laughs> yeah. And that's not really going to be a bad life for her, but he could kind of blow up her spot a little sure. more if he tells Danny some more of the truth behind that. This will really confuse it for Danny. She's not going to know who to believe in. Hopefully Tyrion can see through all of this and help her out. If Davos tells her this woman burned a small innocent child... I don't think Danny's going to be okay with that. I mean, I know she does a lot of burning, but <laughs> this is a different story. And with John, she's going to be like, since I can't come to you, I made you come to me. She's kind of messed up because he's going to find out that it was because of her that she summoned him. Oh, yeah. Of course. Should be an interesting scene. All right. Lewis wrote in. He says he knows he usually goes more in detail with his comments and prediction, but he just has a quick bullet point for us this time. Arya going to Winterfell. Varys is a badass by sticking to his decisions. Holy shit, Jon is going to meet Danny finally. Sansa will definitely F up next episode. And Theon Greyjoy is what you would call a little bitch. <laughs> P.S. Go Grey Worm and Missandei. Glad something good finally happens in Westeros. I love you, Lewis. That's awesome. Michael wrote, quick prediction about Jon and Danny. I'm thinking we are going to see a dragon take a liking to Jon next week. And it will obviously catch everyone off guard, including John. Maybe that will help forge trust with him and Danny. The opposite of that, at Mike Fox 5 said, I think that Olena might convince Danny to burn Jon Snow, but the blood of the Dragon Lord of Light protects him. Oh boy, so I think he meant Melisandre, because she burns people for king's blood. So it's probably a typo. Um, I don't think that Danny's going to be turned to some of these more darker things. Me neither. I do see the possibility of her saying, okay, I need to attack King's Landing using the dragons. There's no way around that. But I think she's going to do as little damage, as little bloodshed as possible to the common people. 
And I think that if Melisandre starts talking some crazy shit, she's going to get kicked out of this court as well. And I do think she's learned. She's learned her lesson a little bit. And especially once John and Davos show up, she's going to be on her best behavior. Melisandre, I mean, we already see glimpses that she's changed a little bit. And I don't think that Danny will burn Jon Snow. Uh, I don't think the viewers will ever forgive her for that. We wouldn't. That'd be too naive and too, like, persuaded. Easily uh, persuaded. Yeah, and as intimidated as she might be by him, she knows she needs his alliance as much as he needs hers. Right? He has yeah. all the knowledge about these walkers, and he's going to tell her about the dragon glass that she's sitting on top of. Right. And I think this is going to forge the alliance of them working together. I think it may be rocky at first, but for sure it will. And back to what Michael said, this would be great. This would be like my kind of scene. If a dragon just really digs John and is kind of cool with him, that would be amazing. Yeah, well, that would certainly have her trusting him a lot more. Which, by the way, should have been a really key thing between him and Tyrion. Did she ever find out that Tyrion was the one that let them out, her other two dragons, while she wasn't there and that they were kind of cool with him? I don't know. Because you'd think that'd be big, right? Yeah, perhaps. They probably talked about it. By How the way, I... they, they didn't kill me. I let them go because they were, you know, not too happy down there, chained up. Uh, not, not free, but, you know, I unshackled them. Okay, I want to return to Emily's rant, as she calls it. Now, the first point she brings up is something other people have been speculating at. What if Arya does go to Winterfell? Sees Littlefinger, perhaps creeping on her sister, and because he's on her list, kills him. Can't remember if Littlefinger is actually on her list, but yeah, she sees something like that. She could still go after him. And the theory there is that she was going to take Littlefinger's face and then go down to King's Landing, and that's oh. how she would get in close to Cersei. Yeah, we just looked it up. He's not on her official list, but I still think that could be cool. Uh, she was also a little frustrated initially with the way they were portraying the women in this episode. Uh, we kind of talked about the forcefulness of Danny turning cold with the John letter, bending the knee. The fact that Yara wasn't on the lookout for the Kraken Armada and the stuff between Sansa and John. But after the instant cast, she came back to say, she agrees with us that Danny's fear might be her biggest weakness and she could be overcompensating for that fear by being rash and a little more strong with her people. And she also agrees with what you were just saying before, Jason. For Sansa, she wonders if Arya could help reset her. If we think Sansa is focused too small, her sister is looking at a leaf instead of the trees or the forest. If I were a dreamer, I'd love Sansa to snap out of it when she's put against Arya, but that might be too much to ask. It does make me suspect when Bran gets there, what will the state of things be? P.S. Have we seen Bronn? And we talked about that. <laughs> no, don't know where he is or where he's up to, but if you have any theories on that, I'd like to hear it. And the last theory is from UFO357. I'm sorry, I don't think they wrote in a name, but they say something that just keeps nagging at me is why Randall Tarly disinherited his son Sam. Could it be that Sam isn't really his biological son? This is probably a dead-end theory, but nonetheless, we know Randall Tarly led the army, which was the only one to defeat Robert Baratheon's force. So what if to get even, Robert seduced and slept with Randall's wife, or possibly even forced himself on her? Randall finds out about this years later and realizes Sam is not his own, so he disinherits him and sends him to the wall. Oh, I think that Robert being the one to sleep with her 
is a little too far-fetched, but I could definitely see perhaps it not being his son, and that's why he chooses to disinherit him. But I really think the majority reason was that he just didn't turn out to be the son Randall hoped he would be, a strong, fierce warrior, which is so funny because you come all the way back around now full circle. Sam is one of the bravest characters on this show. If Randall could get his head out of his ass long (laughs) enough to see that, he might think his son is pretty badass. And a quick shout out to everyone else who wrote to us. Of course, we couldn't get to all of it because we're not doing a Clatcher's comments this week. Christina will most likely reach out to you via email, which means no spelling mistakes. Because if I was writing to you, it'd be horrible. I know I'm taking a little longer than usual to get back to you guys. I apologize, but we did have such an influx this week. And I got a lot of things going on with my other job right now, but I will get around to it. And I promise we did read them all. And we really appreciate it, especially your kind words. And another shout out to everyone who rated and reviewed our podcast. We really appreciate it. It's good to know that our army is big enough and strong enough to face the White Walkers. Don't forget to check out our Patreon podcast where we have movie reviews and bonus episodes. This month, we just finished reviewing Valerian. And although Valerian did get a lot of bad reviews, we managed to find a lot of good things about Valerian. I think we had a great time going through that. It was a lot of fun. You might enjoy the podcast. And don't forget to follow us on the Twitter at CKC Podcast. Every week now, we're going to put up a poll to find out what your MVB was. Our very last segment has spoilers, so if you're afraid of any of that, we will see you next time for the Episode 3 reviews. For everyone that's still here, we have our sneak peek through the heart tree. To Episode 3, The Queen's Justice, Cersei returns a gift. Now, this may refer to when Alaria sent her the gift of the dead viper in a box in Season 5, which was a direct threat against Marcella. Or she could actually be returning Euron's gift that he promised her and turning him down. Jamie learns from his mistakes, and we see from the preview that King's Landing cheers as Euron rides through the streets. The right. unsullied march into battle, and John meets Danny. So the Queen's Justice. Which Queen are we talking about? I know. Cersei I or Danny. Maybe both. Maybe they'll get back to this double meaning title hmm, thing. Maybe. And we also see the Unsullied at Casterly Rock coming in kicking ass, which is a good sign. We want some wins on our side, right? And this is going to be the first time we ever see Casterly Rock. It hasn't been on the TV show. I know it was referenced in the book, but I don't think they ever went there, described what it looked like. I'm wondering if it's going to be on the opening map sequence next time. And I believe we see Jamie at Highgarden. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, this, this um, summary just says he learns from his mistakes, and that could mean any great number of things. We see him. I think he's going to be fighting. We're going to see him kicking some ass, but maybe his mistake is that he's on her side. I don't know. I'm hoping. All right, and the last thing related to the theory you were talking about earlier with Grayscale being turned into biological warfare, I wanted to say that this was reminding me a little bit of something we saw in the books, but it is a spoiler if you haven't read them. There was a plot line where they talked about something called the Bloody Flux, also known as the Pale Mare, and this was an epidemic of essentially what is dysentery that spread through Marine while Danny was there. Its symptoms, I know this is gross, are fever, intestinal hemorrhages, and diarrhea. I'm just highlighting that these people were really suffering. They were long, slow, painful deaths. In book universe, it is a well-known disease with little treatment beyond prevention, mainly quarantine and avoiding contact with the carriers, and it has a very high mortality rate, having been described as killing three of each four men in armies. Sir Barristan Selmy states the bloody flux has been the bane of every army since the Dawn Age, 
and that he had known the bloody flux to destroy whole armies when left to spread unchecked. Even hard men like the second sons were terrified of mounting the pale mare, and they would drive out anyone suspected of having it without a moment's hesitation. In the book A Dance with Dragons, this is where this takes place, the fifth book, the bloody flux spreads through Astapor, and it comes from there with the refugees that seek protection in Marine. Warned about the dangers of letting them in, though, Danny decides to forbid their entrance, so she lets them set up camp right outside of her city walls. But the disease is already spreading, and it eventually ravages both Marine and its siegers from Yunkai and Nugis because they're attacking her at this point. And the people that are left out there face starvation and disease. They're just dying by the hundreds, but there's nothing they can do about it. She feels bad. She tries to send them out fresh water and help in any way that she can, but there's just nothing she can do. And if she lets them inside of the walls, all the people inside are going to get it. It's like a plague to a certain extent that ravages through. And so it made me think we did have that storyline of such an intense bad disease spreading through her portion of the kingdom related to her storyline. And since we didn't see that on TV, might we kind of see something more along those lines in in the show like what you were talking about with Grayscale? Intriguing. Only with what you were talking about, it wouldn't be an accident, more of biological warfare. But we are always open to these new theories, however far-fetched they might seem. So to all of you out there who have some theories, maybe based on more spoiler stuff, you can keep sending them and we'll read them at the end here. We want to thank Woven for supporting this episode. And in case you guys haven't heard about them, you can take a look at their website, woven.com, W-O-H-V-E-N. It's a simple way to purchase t-shirts and they're delivered to your door each month. This is starting as low as $11 per month. They offer blank crewnecks and v-necks, as well as graphic v-necks and crewnecks, with designs created by freelancers. Beautiful classic designs. It has a soft feel to it, and they're pre-shrunk. So Jason, you won't have to yell at me anymore to hang dry your favorite t-shirts that they're going to shrink in the wash. They've done it for you. And what's awesome is prices are included in shipping, so no... Oops, by the way, it's another $10 or another $7. And a lot of these deliver to your doorstep, monthly subscriptions, that's what happens. No fine print on this one. Just fine quality shirts. Never shop for t-shirts again. Just go to woven.com, put in CLATCH, K-L-A-T-C-H, for your promo code and get 25% off. That's woven.com, promo code CLATCH. Till next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Try again.